This is the fifth Sunday of Easter, and just like last week, we begin to see the subtle shift of gears from the first three weeks where we hear about the resurrection appearances and we think about the Easter uh, event itself as being sort of the focus of certainly the readings from the gospel and the other readings, the epistle uh, and the reading from the book of Acts. Last week we begin to switch, and the switch is this. We're going to be moving towards Pentecost, where in in official uh, terms we celebrate uh, the transfer of the Holy Spirit of God from the person of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, both prior to and subsequent to the resurrection, and the transfer of the Spirit from him to the church on Pentecost so that the people of God become both the beneficiaries and the fiduciaries of the Holy Spirit, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And between last Sunday and then, we're going to begin to talk about how the early church appropriated the Easter message and somehow attempted to put it into their hands as they began to go out and to commend to others their greatest place of safety and assurance. And today we have a wonderful reading from the book of Acts and also from the gospel where Jesus uh, gives the disciples and the apostles a new commandment to love one another, the commandment to mutual love. So I'm going to preach about the reading from the book of Acts and then to talk a little bit uh, with you about love as it was understood in first century Palestine, how it was understood in the Greco-Roman world and how we might think about what it is that we, we would like to do if we care about loving better and what it might mean for the future of the world. I mentioned to you last week that we are reading now from the Revised Common Lectionary. And the the RCL has sought in the uh, selection of the readings to expand the voices that we hear from in the biblical text, but also to become acquainted with uh, certain people and groups that are perhaps underrepresented in the old lectionaries. And so we met someone last week named Tabitha or Dorcas in Greek, and Peter raises her from the dead. And we hear a little bit about her role in Joppa and are reminded uh, more in these readings than we used to be about how many holy and pious and, shall we say, well-heeled women Uh, bankrolled the early church and also out of their own resources did worthy works. It said in last week's reading that Tabitha (laughs) supported many widows from her own funds, not from the church's funds. So we see somebody who has uh, got it from the jump and somehow has sought to put into her hands uh, the mighty works of Jesus Christ. So this week, 
uh, between then and this week, something has happened. And what has happened is, is that Cornelius the Centurion, a Roman, a Gentile, has converted to Christianity. And Peter has baptized him. And there are a number of people around uh, Cornelius, Gentiles, Romans no doubt, uh, who also were baptized. It says, I think in this, it says that uh, they had received the Holy Spirit already and so he baptizes them with water to sort of put the capstone on it. But uh, that's what happens. Peter returns to Jerusalem. Before he returns to Jerusalem, he has a vision. And to cut to the chase, without getting into all of the elaborate details of the vision, a voice says to him, what God has made clean, you shall not call profane. What God has made clean, you shall not call profane. He goes back to Jerusalem and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem tell him that he has erred as the result of baptizing Cornelius and other Gentiles and associating with the uncircumcised. And that he has violated their table fellowship and the purity rules that as a pious Jew he would have observed. So he kind of gets chewed out. And then he tells them about this vision that he had. Joseph Fitzmeyer, who is a New Testament scholar, I, he, geez, probably in his 90s now, he's a Jesuit. He said in a commentary, words coming from the leader of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, Peter, are enough to put an end to all further criticism. But here's the deal. This is the first indication in the biblical witness that the whole matter of inclusion comes up. One of the places. And it is a reminder to the people of God that the issue of inclusion is always unfinished business. And how it is understood in every age uh, becomes a centerpiece of our Christian discipleship. It is also an affirmation of something that uh, is extremely important to always keep in mind, particularly when you're thinking about the hot-button issues that face the Episcopal Church today. And that is that the movement towards inclusion always flows from the pastoral experience of the church And what that means is that Peter's lived practice and those who were with him as he moves through Palestine and that area is that there are Gentiles, uncircumcised people who wish now to be part of this, who believe the Savior when he said to them that in me and in my ministry I am announcing what has been present to you as a community for the millennia that through the great prophets of Israel, we have understood that God's saving embrace is not merely for an exclusive group of people, important as they may be in God's plan for salvation, but it is for everyone. 
all come in. And so he, a hidebound Jewish Christian, can do nothing else. You know, this isn't going to end. And even before the book of Acts, Peter goes somewhere. I can't remember where it is. He goes to Galatia or somewhere like this. He meets up with Paul. Before, before uh, he's there, uh, he sits and eats with, with the Gentiles as a matter of course. Or Paul, rather, uh, as Peter does that without any difficulty. Some people show up from Jerusalem. Paul is there. Chew out Peter, and he stops it. He stops doing it. He does the politically correct thing. And Paul jumps him and chews him out and said, you can't behave like this. It's simply not right. By the way, we have no indication that Paul ever ceased being a pious Jew. And when it was convenient for him to do so, he did. But he believed keenly that this was not necessary for those who were not part of this group. And they did not need to undergo any transformations from their, in their, on their body or otherwise in order to accept the saving work of Jesus Christ. So they're in. And this is a bitter pill for many. So this reading hadn't, doesn't appear in the old lectionary. And it's an extremely important reading because it sort of puts to rest why we err on the side of inclusion. Can I be frank with you? In, all of the, in the midst of all of these controversies, I am a little nervous that for many Episcopalians, the only sin these days is exclusion. This is tiresome, and it is not thoughtful. But at the same time, if you're going to err, that's the side you err on. Always. What God has made clean, you shall not call profane. So, you know, there it is in the black letter text, as they would say. So think about the whole idea of inclusivity and its importance and how the church from the beginning has struggled with this question and how in every age we must and find the ways to err on the side of inclusion. And that it comes to us from the pastoral experience of the church. What do I mean when I say that? I mean listening to everybody's story. Do you think that the Episcopalians who, who want some justice and equity in our common life together swung their tootsies over the gunnels one morning and said, how am I going to do the greatest hurt to the Episcopal Church? They said, how do I have to deal with the issues that have been told me by people who have told me their story? And when you're a pastor, uh, that's something that uh, is compelling, you know? I don't mean from a sentimental point of view. I mean from being serious about this and taking other people seriously. Err on the side of inclusion. So we go to John's gospel. I, I don't know, maybe when you hear a gospel like this to you read, you know, glorify me and I and him and you and me and glorify him. And you may be saying, you know, I'm getting about 10% of this. 
Don't feel like the Lone Ranger, so am I. <laughs> and I've read it for a long time. It's a wonderful passage about glory and what it means, a kind of transformative uh, situation, the first part of the gospel. So a preacher in certain settings might want to preach about the theology of glory, you know? I could see how the ortho Eastern Orthodox would get off on that. They'd be going, <laughs> you know, you must remember. But the big part is at the end, isn't it, when Jesus tells the disciples to love one another. Now, in the ancient Near East, people understood love differently than we do. My own personal belief, that most of us think of love in romantic terms, most of us think of love in a kind of sentimental way in this culture. The best sermon I ever heard preached when I was a student at seminary was by a local priest who got up and said, you know what, sentimentality is almost always characterized by a low threshold of pain. <laughs> you know so in the ancient Near East or, or in, in first century Palestine this is how they thought about love I'm going to read to you a quotation from two people who in, in biblical scholarship have done some very important work I suppose one of the places in biblical scholarship over the last 25 or 30 years that there has been a lot of interesting and important work done is on what the social world was like when Jesus was alive or when the biblical uh, figures were alive. You know, how did you get up and go buy stuff? You know, what kind of food did you eat? What kind of houses did you live in? How did families connect up to one another? What was village life like? Things like that. And what was it, you know, how did they do it? In the Mediterranean world, love always had the underlying meaning of attachment to some group, to one's family, one's village or city quarter, one's ethnic group, one's fictive kinship group. The word could also be used of attachment to God. Since in the first century Mediterranean society, there was no term for an internal state that did not entail a corresponding external action. Love always meant doing something that revealed one's attachment, that is, actions supporting the well-being of the persons to whom one was attached. So it was not just sort of the, the, the warm fuzzy, you know, we're so focused on ourself in this culture and have been for so long. There's no use being a curmudgeon about this. I've said this to you before. That's the way it is. So we, we have been for a long time. It's I, 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 me, me, me often, right? But the fact of the matter is it hasn't always been so, and maybe even for large portions of the population of the world today, it still isn't. You don't think first about yourself. You think about your kinship group. You think about the, the corporate uh, understanding of what these qualities are that we're talking about, you know? So this is what I didn't mention, Richard Rohrbaugh and Bruce Malina. Those are the two writers who have written a lot of stuff uh, on this. So 
when we think about love in this sense, it means, you know, extending in some way. In the world that Jesus lived in and people before and after him, uh, the, the big influence, philosophical influence, cultural influence, was Greece, even in first century Palestine. So after Alexander the Great had come down in there, a long time before this, Greek culture was around and the Greek language was spoken as the lingua franca of that age. I've mentioned this to you. When I was in seminary, there were speculation by the New Testament people that taught you that, well, you know, Jesus may have known a little Greek. He spoke Aramaic and he may have known a little Greek. Now it's just accepted as, as the case that he spoke Greek, too. He lived right next to a big Greek town, Sepphoris. So that meant that a lot of the stuff he may have said isn't translations from Aramaic into Greek, it's from the Greek, which is important for, for a variety of reasons. In any case, the Greeks had four words for love. Storge, familial affection as between mother and child. Philia, the deep affection of friendship that some call heart love. Eros, an intense, passionate desire for something. Eros isn't just about sex. It could be about chocolate cake. You know, it, depend, it depends. Yeah. Right? It's that passionate desire. All right? And finally, agape, which is selfless love, even if undeserved or unreciprocated. And last two weeks ago, we talked about it as unconditional love. So the highest form of love in the New Testament and what Jesus is talking about in this gospel today is agape. And I mentioned two weeks ago how hard that may be. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Remember I said, agapeo. And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you, phileo, like a brother. Do you love me, agapeo? You know I love you, phileo. So Jesus caves. And in the last one, he says, do you love me, phileo? And he said, yes, I do, phileo. So I guess the Savior even accepts our conditional love. You know? That may be okay, but how do we live into the idea of unconditional love? You know, you think about this with your kids. There are some families where the, 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 the love is, in fact, conditional. And it's conditional on your behavior. Or it's conditional of you being alive to meet the emotional needs of your parents, you know? And if you don't, you don't get it. And unconditional love is what we're all called to, right? Everybody's made in God's image. But I think it's awfully hard to do. And I think that uh, one of the great conundrums of the spiritual life, of, of, the, of the Christian life, is learning how to do that. Because agape is the one that really uh, involves putting it in your hands and, and um, moving outside yourself. 
you know, going beyond sentimentality. Unconditional, you know, means what it says. There is a element in the way Jesus speaks of love and in the way others have in the New Testament that would indicate that eros and agape are joined up together in some way. And so unconditional love can have a kind of passionate intensity for some people. And maybe that's not a bad thing. There is a great preacher who lived in the uh, 20th century, died in 1968 in the Church of England. His name was Austin Farrar. And he wrote a sermon (coughs) called Giving and Receiving. I'm mentioning this to you now because if I just said to you that agape is hard, if not impossible, who do we look to to begin to learn how to do it? Well, the person that we look to is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. And Austin Farrar says, let us hope that our life here may be a constant opening of the heart to God and to one another in union with Jesus Christ, the only perfect lover of God and lover of humankind, because he is the bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, and because, being of one Godhead with the Father, he has heart enough to love all that the infinite heart is able to give. That sounds kind of passionate to me, doesn't it? If you want to know what would Jesus do, that's what Jesus would do. And he did. Amen.